I want to invite you to imagine that you're an animal, your favorite animal. Pick your favorite animal in the entire world and think about why you want to be that animal. Think about what makes that animal special, why you chose it. Can some folks just call out what animal they, they are thinking of in the moment? A dog, a dolphin, a panther, a horse. How many people were thinking of the mighty and incredible salamander? I did print this out, so I'm very proud of this picture. Um, I come from East Tennessee, and in East Tennessee, we have the Great Smoky Mountains National Park. Have anybody ever visited there before? A few folks, a few folks. And here, we're actually not that far from the Appalachian Mountains. Um, well, in the, in the Appalachians, there are over 47 species of salamander. And it's very unique. And for years, scientists tried to figure out why there were so many salamanders in East Tennessee, in southern Appalachia. And what they discovered was that at one point, there was one species of salamander. And over the years, as the climate changed, as temperatures rose, you got different mountains and different mountain chains that the temperatures rose up those mountains as well. And suddenly, certain species, certain groups of salamanders that could survive in the valleys, it was too warm for them to survive anymore. And so they moved up into the mountains as well. But what happened is that some species, some, some communities of salamander on one mountain couldn't have contact with other species on other mountains. And so these communities became separate. And what they also found was that those species that survived were the ones that found ways of, uh, found ways of partnering with the local, with the other local species. And what worked in one place didn't work in another. So some species, like the spotted salamander, actually adapted a special relationship with algae, where certain cells of algae will live inside the salamander until the mama salamander lays eggs, and the the algae inside the it becomes uh, the algae gets laid inside of the eggs, and what happens is that the embryo that's growing inside of the egg benefits from the algae because the algae adds oxygen to the inside of the egg. And the algae benefits from the waste products of the baby salamander. Other species, like, and I, I had it written down and I can't remember, um, it's a pretty pink salamander, lives in the roots of a tree. And what actually happened was that it adapted to the wet environments that the roots of the tree keep in some of the drier parts of the park where there are no streams. The tree keeps the moisture for the salamander to be able to breathe through their skin. And the tree benefits because the salamander eats grubs and crickets and other things that would feed on the roots of the tree. And so what they found, like Lou and Hanauer talked about in the reading, is that this kind of changes our understanding, our traditional understanding of Darwinism. 
that it used to be that things were dog eat dog, only the strong survive, only the people, only the individuals with the best genes that were most well adapted to fighting in their environment could survive. But what they actually found was that what our understanding of biodiversity actually teaches us is that the most vibrant and healthy communities are those that have the most biodiversity. And the individual species that survive are not those that are the strongest or those that figure out the best ways to exploit their environment, but those that actually find ways of cooperating with their environment. Like the algae and the salamanders, like the trees and the salamanders. In the book Gardens of Democracy, Lou and Hanauer argue that Western institutions are based in a fundamental misunderstanding of Darwinism. That everything from our government to our churches to our local communities were organized for years around this idea that we had to compete and we had to be rugged individuals and we had to, we had to fight and if we weren't fighting, then that meant that we were dying. In religion, it sounds a little bit like this. We have to get more numbers. We have to win more souls for our cause. We glance out of the corner of our vision at other religious traditions who were failing, and we said, oh, man, they're taking, we took, we took satisfaction, even pleasure, when we see other religious traditions failing around us, while at the same time, we celebrated those coming in from these other traditions. And yet, if we observe the natural world with a critical eye as Darwin did, we see that the natural world is not, in fact, survival of the fittest and pure competition. The healthiest and most vibrant ecosystems are those that have the most biodiversity, the most cooperation. And as we move further into the 21st century, this may well serve as a model for how our religious communities might not just survive, but thrive. Earlier, Michelle read a litany that uh, Lou and Hanauer outline in their book of old ways of thinking. I'm going to adapt a few of those and see if they sound familiar. Michelle read, I should be able to do whatever I please as long as it doesn't directly harm someone else. Might be translated as, I can believe whatever I want so long as my beliefs don't harm someone else. Your loss is my gain. If people leave the churches of their upbringing, we can just invite those folks here. It's survival of the fittest. It's survival of the most loving. Only the strong survive. Only the most accepting survive. Rugged individualism wins. My beliefs are more important than the beliefs of others. We are a nation of self-made people. We are a faith movement made of rational, determined people. Every man for himself. I would argue the priesthood of all believers. Today, emerging from our knowledge of emergent Emergence, complexity, and innate human behavior, we see a different story about self-interest is taking shape. Just like with the salamanders and a changing climate, congregations today find themselves in a changing climate. And the ones that are going to be able to survive 
are the ones not that bring in the most money or raise the most during their capital campaigns or pledge drives, but the ones that find ways of connecting with their communities, their immediate communities. Just like with the salamanders, where you still have the general idea of what a salamander is, different communities of congregations, maybe Unitarian Universalism, might look different and develop different ways of interacting with their community based on where they are in our world. But we still hold on to something core. So taking the second part of that litany, what goes around comes around. What we believe has consequences for those around us, not just other Unitarian Universalists, but people immediately in our community, the impoverished, communities of color, immigrants. What we believe has implications for those folks, those folks who are here in our communities. The better you do, the better I do. The more we interact with people in our community and helping, looking for ways to interact with these communities, the better Unitarian Universalists we are. It's survival of the smartest. We have to be innovative. We have to think of new ways of adapting to a changing world. Only the cooperative survive. Only the cooperative survive. Teamwork wins. Working together, not just among in people within our own church, but people in our own community. That's what wins. There's no such thing as a self-made person. We are all of the sums we have not yet counted. We are made up of all of the people who have gone before, all of the people who have put their time and energy and dedicated their lives to our movements, our communities, not just in Unitarian Universalism, but where we live. In the words of President Obama, we didn't build that. There's no such thing as a self-made person. All for one and one for all. Said a different way, everything is connected. The UUA is not immune. All over the country are congregations as they struggle with modern problems of declining membership numbers, older, richer members dying out, and newer, younger members not being able to donate at the same levels they used to, or that, uh, that previous generations could. Our congregations are starting to see also the decline of people religiously affiliated. How many folks have heard about the religious nuns? The folks who, who claim no religious affiliation. I think it's something like 40% in the country now identify as spiritual but not religious. Well, hanging on to this old way of thinking the common rhetoric that you hear, not just in Unitarian Universalism, but in all denominations, all mainline denominations that are trying to figure out how to hold on, the main thing you hear is, we've got to figure out how to reach those people. They're out there, and they're looking for us. They just haven't found us yet. Research shows that that's not true. They know we're here. They just don't want to be here with us. And that's fine. We need to figure out ways of going out and being with them. This problem has driven us to look for more membership, 
There are articles and articles produced about this every single year. But perhaps the issue is not that we need to find new ways of reaching out so much as we need to find new ways to exist and interact with our communities around us. I recently came across some posts online. A member said, it's not enough for Unitarian Universalists to be home to everyone. They need to be home to the people who are already here. To think that we can be all things to all people is to buy into the same old model of competition. There will always be people outside of our community. There will always be people in our communities, right next door, down the road, in our schools, who are not Unitarian Universalists and might sometimes struggle to understand who we are and what it is we believe. The true test of our faith comes not in how many souls we can win, but maybe how many, or how many religious nuns we can convince that Unitarian Universalism is the home they've been looking for. Perhaps the true test of our faith is how we find ways of working with other organizations of people, other communities, and interacting and interfacing with them. This doesn't happen overnight. And each person needs to decide for themselves what their faith means. It's very, very similar to the story for all ages. Each person needs to decide for themselves what the chalice means. But that's just a very, very tiny piece of it. I heard when I became a Unitarian Universalist, someone sold it to me this way. As a Unitarian Universalist, it's great because you can believe whatever it is you want to believe. And that's based on our fourth principle of the free search for truth and meaning. But that's not actually our complete fourth principle. Our fourth principle is the free and responsible search for truth and meaning. And I would argue that that responsibility is not just to the folks around us that we're in community with, in our congregations. It's not just to the people who live around us, our friends and neighbors and schools and governments, but it's actually a responsibility also to ourselves. The best way to improve your likelihood of surviving and thriving, Lou and Hanauer say, is to make sure that those around you survive and thrive. Notwithstanding American mythology about selfishness making the world go round, humans have in fact evolved. Humans have been selected to look out for others in their group, and in so doing, to look out for themselves. We exist today because this is how our ancestors behaved, they say. We evolve today by ensuring that our definition of our group is wide enough to take advantage of diversity and narrow enough to be actionable. So wide enough, Unitarian Universalism being wide enough to take advantage of helping those around us and interacting with those around us, but narrow enough and practical enough for us to act on it. So I end today's service with another assignment. I'm curious in a bigger question than our chalice. You have come to Unitarian Universalism, and maybe this is apt for new members who have come today as well, but at one point we were all new members of Unitarian Universalism. So this question is for all of us. What does your Unitarian Universalism mean to you? 
we've hypothesized that it can be inclusive in some ways. But how does your personal theology fit? What do you believe about God or the universe or science? And what does that belief call you to think about interacting with your world? What does that free search for truth and meaning call you to be responsible for in your life? How do you make space for others? What is specific to your theology that is wide enough to take advantage of diversity and narrow enough to be actionable? This isn't a rhetorical question. You cannot believe whatever you want to in Unitarian Universalism. Your beliefs have to be responsible. So my assignment to all of us gathered today is to think in the next week, the next two weeks, the next month, the next year, think hard about what it is you believe and think about how that calls you to embrace theodiversity in the same way that the natural world embraces biodiversity. Put another way, if you could imagine yourself as a Unitarian Universalist salamander, what are the ways that you would interact with your community around you? Amen and blessed be.